Welcome to this extra Appetite for Production extended interview. In this episode, James continues his chat with Francis Prev, covering his most underrated soft synths, his take on modular software, and his route into professional sound design. If you haven't heard the start of the interview, you can hear it in episode 29, along with more from the two of us. So, what would James especially like to know? What I would especially like to know is what your what was your way in? Um, a, what was your first synth and the first thing you could really design sound on? And also, how did you end up in sound design as a career from that? Okay, so my first synthesizer was, man, I got, there's a, there's a lot of that. If you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, book it's a great book i love everything by that guy writes um he talks about how there are certain things where you just happen to be in the right place at the right time in terms of like history and uh i was 14 years old and my first synth was that radio shack moog that like now that i understand synths is based on the liberation architecture um also a cousin of the rogue architecture but you could go to rate you could go to Radio Shack. I don't know if they had that in the UK. Similar things, yeah. But yeah. So I guess for I for you guys it was more like the wasp right. and the 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 octave cat and kitten and that those sorts of lower end synths. Mm. In the, here in the US there was a mode called the MG one. And it didn't have presets. This is the pre before the preset thing. The Prophet Five was five thousand dollars, the Radio Shack was five hundred. Mm. So I was 14. I was super into comic books and super into sci-fi. And my, you know, my favorite bands were like the cars and I loved the strings and disco and, you know, like all of the, all of the sort of the, the sort of seventies era synthesis stuff, pre-craft work. Um, so I got, I got, I decided, I told me, you know, I told my parents, I want to be, I want to get a synthesizer. And they're like, are you, what is, what are you crazy? <laughs> they, they didn't know what it was. Um, ironically, I grew up one street over from Bob Moog and I'm still friends ah. with Michelle Moog to this day, but that's a different story for a, di- for a different podcast. Um, so I got this Moog and because it didn't have presets, I had to learn what the knobs do. And when you're, when you're 14 and you have a very high degree of, of neuroplasticity and all the time in the world, you'll just sit there and play with a synth all the time. And that was pr- also pre-MIDI. So because I was so young at the beginning at the like and I, I, I my first synth was analog, I was sort of able to follow the progression of synthesis technology. Like I had a synth that didn't have presets, so I had to learn what the knobs do in an analog context. Mm. And then, you know, and then I got a polyphonic synth. My first polyphonic synth was the Korg Poly 6, which I still have a very soft spot for. Very easy to program, one oscillator, filters, etc. Really cool sound. Got the Poly 6. And then and then a little bit later, you know, digital synths became affordable. So I got a DX7. And because when, you know, when you're 18 and the DX7 comes out, you have the patience of like the you the, the level of pay you are willing to work in that two line LCD. So yeah. I got a feel for you know, and then I got a sampler because samplers became affordable. So every incremental advancement in synthesis was something that I was able to keep up with. Mm. Like now, getting into synthesizers, especially as a college professor, I understand this. Um, 
the, it's overwhelming. Do you, you know, do you start with wavetable? Do you start with FM? Do you start with analog? Do you start with sampling? Like, where do you go? So I sort of, when I, in my synth one class at the college, I, I teach the, 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 the concepts in the, in chronological order. Right. So that at the end of my synth one class, you understand sort of, you know, the, the essentials of these synthesis technologies in a, in a sort of the same way I learned them. Because I figure if it worked for me, it's probably going to work for other people. And everything was built on the back of everything else anyway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's like, you know, an operator has, you know, subtractive filters on, on, grafted on top of like a DX9. Um, it's actually a synclavier because the synclavier had, or synclavier if you'd prefer, um, because that had the, uh, the additive section as well. So mm-hmm. the operator is a strange cousin of the, the synclavier. Um, so, so that answers the synth question. As far as like my, my overall career arch, it was the Moog. I got the Moog because I, you know, like I said, I mean, every teenager wants to be a rock star. You know, it's just, it's, that's, hmm. you know, you know, I, I think maybe now teenagers are like, I want to be a sound designer. Maybe gaming is, you know, I'm certainly seeing that in my classes. Gaming is more of a motivation. Uh-huh. But I wanted, to, I wanted to be in Depeche Mode. I wanted to be my favorite. I really wanted to be Nick Rhodes in Duran Duran. I even <laughs> had, the hair, I had the I had the hair and eyeliner to prove it. <laughs> um, so I started in New Wave. And then I had some success with my band. And, you know, we had like a minor... Um, uh, deal with a, a subsidiary of Capitol Records, and that went as far as it would go. And we did some movie soundtracks, but I realized that the only people who got paid were the producers. The band didn't make any money, hmm. but everybody who was involved—the engineers, the producers, the lawyers, the managers—their paychecks cleared. So um, that's when I said, "Okay, well, I want—I don't want to be in a band anymore. I want to be a producer." <laughs> and then. But then I, I still had my contacts yeah. from that. So um, so I managed to become a producer. And because rave, like, so these artists who are iconic now were sort of, in the UK, certainly they were more popular. But in the US, no one had heard of them. Mm. So I was doing remixes for like Orbital and, and Utah right. Saints and stuff like that when I was like 20, 26. And they just, it's... You know, it was just like it was a natural progression from, you know, synth pop to techno. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then um, I took a detour when the Internet happened. I thought, oh, web design is really cool. So I became a graphic designer and I did a, I had a couple of like fully corporate day jobs <laughs> um, because it was cool. And you could make a lot. You could make a lot more money. Right. As a web designer in the 90s than you could ever make as a, as a DJ or, or, or playing in a band. Mm-hmm. So I just like, I, 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 I learned Photoshop and I learned HTML and I learned JavaScript and I did that for the nineties. And it was a lot of fun cause you could be creative. Mm. Um, and then I slipped on a banana peel and became a, and became a journalist. Um, David Bettino, uh, who's, uh, a, a, a fairly, uh, storied journalist and technologist. Um, asked me to write an article on the Apple Newton mm. for a magazine called Music and Computers. And I, you know, I didn't have a journalism degree or an English degree. So I, I asked him if, uh, uh, I said, are you sure? I'm not, a, I'm not a writer. And he's like, well, you, you know, in our conversation, you know, the topic, I am an editor, 
give it a shot. The worst case scenario is I don't ask you to do it again. But since I'm an editor and you know the topic, you can at least give it a shot. So I wrote and he's like, wow, I didn't have to do very much editing at all. Would you like another assignment? So the next thing you know, I was a journalist. Just kept going. And, and well, at that point, <laughs> I mean, and, and people, I mean, this is just a fact. Like, I always tell my students, if you want to have a successful career, go get a job where you're going to be talking to a lot of other musicians. Mm-hmm. So even if you think you shouldn't work at a, a musical, if you think a musical retail outlet, MI retail outlet selling keyboards and guitars, if you think that's beneath you, you have to understand that if you know what you're talking about, if you really know your stuff and someone comes in, you don't know who they are, or maybe you do, maybe it's somebody famous. And I've had several students who have taken that approach. They went and worked in a music store and Famous people would come in and they would be able to answer their Ableton questions or Mm. their synthesis questions. And all of a sudden, that leads to a new opportunity. And I knew that as a journalist, that was going to, I would be able to talk to any artist, I would be able to talk to any company. And it enabled me to, you know, sort of, you know, establish myself just by having good conversations with people who I thought were cool. Mm. That's a very good point that you can see other um examples of that uh i recently did an interview with uh, junkie xl he worked in a music shop in holland uh eric persing of course used to work in a music store um, i used to work in a music store I, when I, I it was because the other thing that people don't understand is when you you know if you're working in brick and mortar brick and mortar you're working in with with atoms and you're actually mm. touching gear is when there are no customers, management actually encourages you to go play with the gear. Right. So they want you to know the products they're selling. So you will never get in trouble for playing with the inventory. Yeah. So and so as that and that really groomed me on, on a certain level for both production and journalism because you know, I was playing with the K2000 and the Quadrasynth and all that. And I like, you know, I had time to master all these synths that I couldn't afford at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. You will know ne- if you are, if you are an artist, even if it's low paying, it's like the, it is absolutely the best way to learn it. It's so funny to find out that Junkie XL and, and, and I seem to recall Eric Persing, that part of Eric Persing's story, but I didn't know that Junkie XL worked in music. Yeah. Well. It's a great way. Back yeah. in the Netherlands. And he was, he was working at, uh, in this store at the time that Analog Gear was going for a song. And he had a deal with the owner that when someone brought the Analog Gear in, that the owner would, he would, he would basically buy it off the owner for the same price that the owner paid for it. And so now he's got all this stuff and it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy, but I've got <laughs> literally out my window is, um, a music store down on the, uh, down on the street. So, you know, I'm probably going to send one of my kids to work there one day and, uh, just make sure they get a good start on their career. If that, yeah, I, it is, I do, I cannot, I, I always urge my students to do it. I've got a student who's really, really gifted, has a band. He now works in pro audio at an Austin based, uh, shop. And I'm like, you know, cause that's what I told him to do. I wrote his letter of recommendation. I said, the kid's great and he loves it. Cause he's always, 
learning and and it's a great way to evolve on somebody else's dime one of the one of the most interesting things that was said to me it was like when i was about to leave university and one of the lecturers was saying to us you're not here to be musicians are you you're not here to be artists and everyone was like yeah and <laughs> he says no no this is this is a degree you do a degree so you can be part of the industry and that's what a degree teaches you to be part of the industry not just an artist in the industry you're going to be the industry that's actually a really good point mm. um uh, the department that i work for uh, at the college i teach at is technically um it's called they call it the, the the department the workforce department so it's technically a trade school right and it's the trade school for audio engineering Mm-hmm. So I don't teach in this sort of Stanford academia ivory tower methodology. I teach in a really empirical manner. It's more like the guy that if you go to a trade school to learn how to repair a car, mm-hmm. I I teach I teach synthesis from the perspective of learning how to be a sound designer mm. as a trade, not as a not as a you know, I mean, and all of the discoveries, John Chowning, and I said this in an interview last year, John Chowning accidentally discovered FM. It's not like he got out a slide rule and some graph paper and figured it out. Yeah. So, so I teach it from, from an empirical perspective. Well, and I, I, I think that's, that's, yeah, you to teach them because I tell them and this is the last thing I want to say on, 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 I guess, in, in this area is I tell them you're going to have a day job, even if you want to be the next dead mouse or daft punk or whatever artist you're trying to be, you're going to have to get a day job mm. until you until your lightning strikes or your lottery ticket happens. And do you want your day job to be related to what your what your goal is as an artist, or do you want your day job to be like? Do you want a side of chips with that? Yeah, I mean, the the whole proper academic house of cards is probably going to come tumbling down, um, as opposed to the actual learning things that you can apply. So when people are talking like that guy was talking about being part of the industry, I think it's. It's it was still valid, but it will probably be less and less valid as people become more sort of self-sufficient, self-employed, and sort of we have this decentralized system that we seem to be moving towards. Well, it's like it. it in it, I just realized as you were saying that that this kind of in a strange sort of way could theoretically, if we ex- extrapolate outward by like another ten or twenty years, um. I could see the gig economy applying to things like EMTs, like if you, an emergency <laughs> medical technician. So instead of calling an ambulance if you need stitches, would just you call like stitches.com and they, they, <laughs> they send some off-duty EMT over to your house. I just gave somebody a complete business model. Go, uh, send, send, uh, contact, contact me at francisprev.com and for my royalty checks on, on your, your huge business model for stitches.com. One thing I've always thought, in fact, you mentioned Dave Smith, and it was when, specifically when I was playing with the Dave Smith Pro 2, um, I was going through the presets, 
which I assume you had a lot to do with. I actually know my only two. I the ah. only, I, Dave brought the, my first Dave Smith pre, uh, preset gig was the Rev Two, mm-hmm. and then I did the Profit Profit X uh, last year. And I'm assuming that uh, assuming that Dave Smith will inevitably release another <laughs> product that the phone will ring when he's ready. But no, I didn't do the Pro Tool. Al- although I will say, and I hope Dave doesn't get mad at me, it is among my favorite. Dave Smith since period. Mm. Well, when I was going through the presets of it, one of the things I kept experiencing was the thought that I cannot make this preset any better. You arrive at a preset, it sounds amazing. And anything you do to the preset, anything you change, anything you tweak is going to make it worse because it's so well designed and it's, it's a credit to the sound designers, but it's so well designed that you can't touch anything or you'll make it sound bad. And so what I keep thinking is that each synth should start having a few uh, relatively basic presets in it as well, sort of sketch presets, if you see what I mean. So you get some sort of starting points from which you can do a bit of tweaking. I actually did that. Mm. Um, uh, I did a collaboration with a dear friend of mine, Jim Stout from Karma Studios, and it was my first product for Roland Cloud, but it was an independent product. They may, you know, I mean, who knows, it may appear in Roland Cloud at some uh, at some future date, but mm. it is currently available now from Karma Studios. He's handling the distribution um, for System 8 and the, uh, like the, you know, some, it was a Synthwave pack. Right. And I created a bunch of templates. Um, so I really, like, there are six, there were 64 preset slots, so I, so we did 32 presets and then I did eight identical base pad lead pluck templates so that users wouldn't feel weird about overwriting stuff. Yeah. You know, I like I, I always like, oh, am I going to have to sacrifice this sound that I don't know if I'll ever use yeah. in order to put my own sound in there? So I was like, here, feel comfortable deleting these, modifying these, doing whatever. But I created the because those are what I think the 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 sort of the four categories are bass pad, lead pluck. And then if you're working with a digital synth, maybe like bell mallet. Um, I try to stay away from effecty sounds. They're great on like a, on, on like a show floor, but you know, I mean like with the exception of digital native dance, people rarely use the really flashy presets. I don't under, I don't understand why, mm. why some sound designers do that because they're like, Unless yeah, it's just difficult. I guess they're but selling they're themselves, like like you're selling the synth on a show floor. They're they're also selling themselves as sound designers. And yeah, no, I, yeah, no. I check my ego at the door when I'm doing that, and 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 that sounds a little weird. But really, I'm like I'm there to 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 make the Rev Two or X for Serum or Ableton Live sound as good as it can for their audience. Mm. And I. I understand that that's my role is to be almost like trans, invisible, transparent, and that might be why that might be why I get so many repeat customers is because they understand that I can do the the meat and potatoes stuff that highlights the features for the sense. Right, right. That that so. makes sense, and I think people appreciate that, um, especially the actual professionals rather than the people who have just picked something up and want to hold a key down and and immediately get a tune. Um, yeah. 
Exactly. That's why I was doing that with the Dave Smith Pro 2, because I thought it's it's almost an obligation to change this a bit so that I don't just say ah, I used a preset. You know, there's there's that stigma to the artist as well. But these days I don't feel that. Well, the amp envelope, like for me, it's like if I, if I am, you know, on the occasions when I'm dialing through a synth and I'm, I'm modifying presets, the two things that I always touch are cutoff frequency because mm-hmm. I generally like sounds that aren't quite suit. I don't like really bright sounds. I'll make them when I'm working on a product. But if, in my own work, I don't like sounds where I don't like a lot of information above like 8K. Um, and then the other thing is... Uh, the amp envelope. I'm always increasing my release times. I'm all, I always like, cause that's and I, and I, if I really want to like self analyze and think about where that comes from, it comes from the fact that when I got my first since a digital reverb was $1,500. Right. So if you wanted something that was kind of like reverb, you would have to just extend your release times. Yeah. And I tell like, so I follow, I sort of psychoanalyze why I like what I like. Is there any current software, any current kit that you think is underrated and just sort of you maybe checked it out and really liked it or worked on it, but when you saw it in sort of the public forum, it sort of went over everybody's heads? Operator. Right. I I think there, I think, I think, I think, I think operate and FM synthesis in general, but operator is arguably the easiest, most uh, approachable uh, implementation of FM synthesis. Mm-hmm. And I think and additive. I, I, and additive. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I did, I've done, I did some tutorials for you on that. Um, the, but the, uh, for at least for future, um, the thing is, uh, operator can do so much and I, and like really insane stuff. And I, and I'm, a lot of people don't know this, but noisia and, and early Skrillex was very heavily operator based. Mm. Um, and then more into FM8 and massive, but operator is so powerful that I think it, I think it, I think a lot of people might get sweet, but then they immediately go to wavetable because wavetable is a buzzword. And I think that 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 operator has flown under a lot of people's radar. And I also think that AAS applied audio uh, applied acoustic ah. systems, um, who I've done some work for, um, their chromophone oh, physical modeling. That's one of my keep, favorites. I keep thinking that I, I really I keep waiting for that one art because people always follow whatever artists says, oh, I use it. it's like the whole like yeah. serum. A big part of serum was like a lot of big artists started using it. Mm. So everybody wanted to be like their idols. But I'm still waiting for that one artist that makes it huge, just like giant impact. And says, I use chromophone. Yeah. And then physical and then everybody's gonna want a physical model. I, I remember it coming out and I've I've done some stuff with it uh, since I, I got my hands on it. But yeah, chromophone, I I just that's a, I really like that kind of sound in general for some reason. I guess it's that sort of strange mix of harmonics that goes into a, a bar or a, anything struck. And also the fact that it's sort of after the strike. It comes to a rest, and so you don't really get a steady state of harmonics. You just get everything fluctuating until it dies down. Perhaps it's that. that. Well, yeah. Well, there's that. There are a couple. There's. Uh, I'll give. A, I'll throw out a couple of tips there. Um, I. Uh, one of the things, even if you're not using um, a, a, a really hyper advanced synth with like Lorenz modulators or chaos generators, if you add just a tiny, eensy, weensy little bit 
of sample and hold, ideally the sample and hold that's smooth. Uh If you add just a, a smidgen of that to your oscillators or your filter, you'll get that weird sort of analog mm. drift, that weird sort of organic chaos. And it really does add a lot to to that sort of thing. But I know exactly what you're talking about with, with chromophone, where you get these things that if, if you were to sit down and try to recreate it using any other form of synthesis, it would just take forever. Mm, mm. And it's like almost instant with chromophone. And yeah, I, so. I, used, I simply use that one for presets. So like I don't dive into the physical modeling. It's just that's often the kind of tone, the exact kind of tone I want to get when I, I'm messing around with something on a keyboard. Um, one that I have seen people miss is a synth called Wiggle. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, but now I'm going to go look for it. It's uh, by, it's by. I think it might be the first Chinese Chinese soft synth. Um, it's very cool. It's by Second Sense Audio. Wiggle. I am typing that right now. Check it out. It looks it looks really good. As you you've sort of got four oscillators, and it's it's hard to explain how it does its stuff, but you can you get a good visual representation of the movie and it's called and it's spelled correctly w-i-g-g-l-e yeah okay so i'm gonna put that on my desktop sometimes there are well i mean the 303 is a perfect example of something that was just too weird (laughs) um for the for for the first generation and then you know somebody you know and then you know the it's it, it it took off with the whole like future track from the and i mean p-h-u-t-r-e <laughs> um yeah, the, the whole techno thing t or what i can't spell future <laughs> um please, so, please don't. <laughs> anyway yeah so it's a lot of sometimes you'll find an outlier like that and and, and they're really they're really cool so i'll definitely go check that out and, and you're right about china i think there's i think i think we're going to to uh, it almost seems like what's taking so long yeah. because they have all the manufacturing. What they, and so many American synths are built over in China. Mm. And that, th- this, is, this is just a soft synth. But yeah, I, I was, I've been waiting for a while. This guy is, um, he, he is the editor of the Chinese website MidiFan. Uh, so he's already like, he's like the Chinese version of us. But he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's made this or had someone make it. And he, he did some other things as well, some like EQ tools and uh, I think a, an audio editor as well. Um, but there's another company that recently popped up in China. There's one I saw in Brazil who just made a filter and then went away. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm waiting to see people from around the world come along and, and get more involved in this. Then we'll probably get some really interesting stuff. Well, yeah, and I, it's, interest, there's, it's interesting you mentioned that about, about diverse products coming from a, 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 a internationally, like just like a wide range of countries. Mm. Um, I see that happening a lot in the modular world. And despite the fact that I have, my, I have a very – I have a love-hate relationship with modular, um, I will say it's really it's really facilitated a bunch of companies like Bastel and mm. and 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 in Czechoslovakia and 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 these tiny little companies and I keep waiting for them to like maybe modular will peak and then we'll start to see some really 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 nicely designed instruments with an architecture and a sound. Right. Like that's one of the that's one of the reasons that I'm not 
everybody's very surprised that I'm not a huge modular uh, fan. I know how to use modular. Mm. I mean, I just did the a giant programming assignment where uh, I was, and I can talk about it in this much. I just did a bunch of programming for 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 some iconic modulars like Tonto and 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 that sort of thing. And 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 I had a, a, a wonderful um, experience doing that. But in terms of my own work, the two things are. I really want to hit save. Yeah. And 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 the fact that a modular is quite a bit like, you know, sort of a Tibetan sand mandala <laughs> where you're like yeah. where you make you make the perfect sound, but then at the end of the session you have to rip out all the cables you, you and can take a picture sweep of the it. sand away. You can take yeah. a picture of it by rendering it to audio, but that's it. Yeah. And yeah, and even if even if you go plug the cables in exactly the same way and set the no knobs the same way, and I was talking to Malcolm Cecil who who created Tonto about this, he's like, even if you set the knobs up exactly the same way, you're not going to get the same sound. Right. And and there's a part of me that's like, I might make the right sound for a track that I'm not going to write for two years, and I might make that sound today, and I'll be like, oh, cool. I want to use that eventually. I'm not sure where. And with a modular, you just can't do that. And and that's that to me is a is, it comes back to being a preset designer. It's very frustrating. Mm. The other thing is, I don't think people who use modulars, not all of them by any stretch, but I think that there's a a subset of modular users who don't realize that you can get exactly the same sound out of a good soft synth like Serum. I think both. I think I think both of those, both of your observations are are on point. Um, and that's why, that's why I really I encourage my students when they, you know, I'm like, fine, get a modular, use it as a learning tool, use it as a as a way to have fun when you know when you're drunk or whatever. But understand that something like Serum with it's got eight LFOs. Yeah. Can you imagine the the like if you if you take the equivalent cost of buying eight. LFO modules that, you know, it's like, or oscillators, if you're just going to switch them to low frequency mode, et cetera. There are a million ways to skin a cat in, as they say, sorry, that's an unfortunate metaphor, mm. um, in, in modular, but there's, you can do it in a soft synth if you stop and think it through. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's, it doesn't have the level of experimentation. I just put air quotes around that word, but, but really it's the other thing is that modulars can't be polyphonic ah. and I like, I like chords, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm sure that there'll, you know, there'll be some all caps comment someplace where it's like Francis said modulars can't be polyphonic and he's not right. Yeah, no, you can make them paraphonic. You could, there are like ways of doing it, but, but the, the level of effort to make a polyphonic modular is, it, it exceeds you know, what can be achieved simply because there are so many soft sense out there that can do it. Well, yeah, if, if people wanted to put loads of effort into everything, then everyone would just buy reactor and never buy anything else. Right. You know, that, that, that's, right. that's the last plugin that should have been made in some people's theoretical perfect worlds, but it's not the last plugin that was ever made because people don't want that. People want fixed ready rooted ready made solutions to things they might want to do that's why if you look at my studio you'll find you won't find i mean like i have some modular gear there's some stuff i like but i don't i don't have like racks and ra tons of euro racks I, I really 
I love, and it's like the guitarists mm. who like the sound of a Telecaster because they like the configuration of the pickups and the choice of, of, of wood for the fretboard and the, you know, the, the body. It's, they're like guitarists understand that a specific guitar design is going to give you a specific sound. Mm. But it seems like synthesis haven't like there, we haven't reached that level of nuance in the conversation where, I mean, you get it with Moog. If you want a bass sound, you get a Moog. I mean, everybody likes Moogs for bass, mm. but they haven't yet realized that like the OB6 is good for pads. The Korg monologue is good for acid stuff. The, the Roland system eight is good for like synth wave and, 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 and every, when a synth has a, a specific architecture, and specific types of circuits, it's going to lend itself to certain applications in a way that you just can't get with a module. Do you think that still applies in the software world? Do you think people are still developing yeah. synths with things like that in mind? Yeah, I think, I think yeah, absolutely. Well, Serum, one of the big reasons Serum was so good is because P, I, don't, I don't think people were used to not hear, to, to, to getting rid of aliasing. Serum, Steve's devotion to eliminating aliasing noise mm -hmm. was one of those reasons that Serum sounded so good and everybody was like, this sounds so transparent. It's like, well, that's because Steve really cares about aliasing noise. <laughs> and there, there are, there's a, there's a, there, there, are, there are other manufacturers and I'm leaving them out just because we simply don't have time. It's a physics issue. Um, but then there are other synths that come out that have a ton of aliasing noise but still somehow managed to sound okay. Right. And then there are other synths that are just drowning in aliasing and, and why even bother? <laughs> so, so you've got, so you've got, so there's this one attribute called aliasing that most people are not familiar with and it's worth Googling. And this aliasing noise is a part of some soft synth designs. Mm. And in a way can give them their, not just their digital feel, but their personality. But yeah, it, it is generally the mission of a software synth developer to get rid of all aliasing, ideally. Right. And that, well, the other thing is there are a lot of, a lot of, uh, like envelopes or, and, and LFOs. Like, do you want a multi-stage envelope? Do you want a simple ADSR? Does your ADSR need to have like the little hold section? Mm. There are lots of, like, there are lots of little ways that software designers can, can sort of leave their, their thumbprint Mm -hmm. on the design of a synth and 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 i think people are so here i am as a preset designer saying this i think they're so obsessed with presets that they don't get a chance to explore that it's like when you get a, a soft synth that comes with a thousand presets it's 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 almost easier to learn the damn thing than to than to than to sit there and spend an entire weekend going through all one thousand presets yeah. and deciding ones you like. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. There there are there there are a lot in some, but some some have clearly far too few as well. I've seen things that come with like ten presets, and you just you know you want to you want a bit more to explain the depth of that one. I'm working on a new synth right now that I, that I, uh, this is something I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be very proud of. It, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I've been contracted by a company that can't talk about their startup, et cetera. But my job is to actually, does it, is to do two things to curate the, the submissions from other preset designers. And I am, I'm very, I mean, I'm super honorable about that. I don't, I don't, 
I don't play favorites. If it's a good sound, it gets in. If it's if it's if there's if there are two pad sounds and they're both sawtooth pad sounds, I'm going to pick the better one. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it based on playing favorites or whether I like. I don't even know that many sound designers. I know a bunch on the in the U.S., but not overseas. Yeah. Um, and then the the other thing my job is is to design the factory bank mm. and. And it's a really interesting process because they've gave me they've given me complete control. And it's a lot of responsibility and I am actually I'm give, I'm being very I love the synth that I'm working on and it's when it comes out you'll uh, we'll talk about it more. Um but I have to I have to be the guy figuring out well how many timeless sounds am I going to make? Mm. Am I go, am I going to add like three trendy sounds i mean the one thing i know i'm going to do is i'm going to do an 808 kick and a super saw Uh we'll just get those out of the way because everybody wants those those are the two sounds that everybody wants right now but then after that it's like well how many how many sound how many sounds am i going to make that that have expiration dates versus how many sounds am i going to make that are going to sort of stand the test of time. I had to do that with when I when I was working on Serum. Mm-hmm. I had to make I you'll if you if you go through my, the Serum presets I did, you'll find that most of them are really kind of classic. Right. So so in doing this, I have a lot to do with I have a lot to do with that. So I have a feeling that the other sound designers who are working on the project, um, they're going to be the 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 men and women. Who uh, who create the stuff that's a little bit a little bit more trendy, mm-hmm. and I'll stick with the meat and potatoes and bread and butter sounds. Hmm. Well, it's it's admirable, and I guess maybe the other people's uh, sounds will be used in the first couple of years, but yours will be used in the year to come the most. Hopefully, hopefully, it's like the M1. It's like the M1 piano. I mean, I can we, like, we could just sit and talk about iconic sounds that everybody <laughs> still uses. Yeah, like the DX7 piano or the M1 piano or the or the the JP8000 Super Saw or, or 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 the 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 Wubs that came out of FM8 and Operator. It's like they're really, you know, there are some of those sounds really are just sort of iconic. Mm. And yeah, so. there there are, there are plenty of things to be said for sounds that are of their time because they're they're the things that truly get famous. But yeah, the bread and butter, it's what we eat every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need a balanced diet. Speaking of which, what's <coughs> what's your favorite studio snack? My favorite studio snack. You know, you use you're patching, you're you're twiddling knobs, you're getting a bit hungry. What do you go for? Uh my favorite. Okay, so my favorite su- used to be gummy bears. I used to be ah. like a huge, and I, I still love gummy bears. I have a soft spot for them. At gigs, I used to I used to throw little 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 single serving packets of, of gummy bears <laughs> at the at the crowd. They would think they were condoms, yeah. and they'd look at them and they'd be like, "Oh no, that's a little bag of Haribo gummy bears," and it would be funny. Um, the uh, the other thing that, uh, but in terms of me, I'm a huge fan of, of of Tootsie Pops. Do they have those over there? No, no, they don't. They don't. Um, we might have something similar, but I don't think so. Well, Tootsie Rolls are this like definitively American candy that were supposed to be fudge, but really don't. And they've been around for like a hundred years. Uh-huh. But they have this extremely specific flavor, and there's this 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 lollipop that has a uh, a hard candy shell around this Tootsie Pop center. 
And I'm I, I those are, those are just kind of always laying around when I'm like, oh, I'm vaping too much. I should probably satisfy my oral fixation in some other manner. Right, right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, I see them. I um, I think we do have American sections these days in supermarkets. I don't know why, but it's it's a phenomenon that's happened over the last five years or so. Suddenly, every supermarket has a little American section. It's a novelty value sort of thing. But maybe there are. If available. you ever. If you ever run into me at a, this is how much I like Tootsie Pops. If you ever run into me at a trade show, I will probably have them in my bag. <laughs> um, and and there's another, there's an actually there's a Japanese candy um, that is always I don't really not so much in the studio, but I always kind of have it with me when I'm out and about. It's an everyday carry, as they say. Um, there's a Japanese gum called Black Black. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? No. I've, I mean, I've, I've had my share of Japanese uh, sweets, but uh, I don't remember that. It's a gum called Black Black. And the gum itself, it's like a stick of gum. Like It looks like a, a standard sort of classic stick of gum. Mm-hmm. But, but the gum itself is black. And the flavor is a very strong mint uh-huh. flavor with, with a smidge of, if you look at the ingredients chrysanthemum oil but the kicker is that it's caffeinated a really caffeinated yes. gum so it's caffeinated gum mm. so if you're you're if you're if you're out and about and you just you re, you, you can't you can't find a starbucks i i i, I have my black black <laughs> gum with me genius that's that it's perfect <laughs> 